Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Theology and Reality Podcast, Special Lent 2023 Book Club Edition. This year, we're reading Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard, an allegorical spiritual classic that's been read by tens of millions of people over the last half century. We're so happy to be able to bring these special episodes to you completely free. But if you like what you hear and want to support the work we're doing over at the Theology and Reality Substack, consider becoming a paid subscriber. All our work is supported by readers and listeners like you, and we hope to be doing this for many years to come. A quick warning, there are spoilers ahead, so if you want to be surprised at home, feel free to hit the pause button and come back when you've read the corresponding chapters for each episode. We're back with the final episode for Hind's Feet on High Places, and we're doing chapters 17 through 20, and I'm really interested to sort of get into your thoughts on how this actually ends. But first, let's start with chapter 17. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This set for me, once we got to Healing Streams and this part, felt like a breath of fresh air. It was everything we were waiting for and anticipating. And I was kind of throughout the book waiting for this moment of relief that she gains. Um, But also not just not consolation in a cheapened sense, but like a depth of union in needing Christ or the shepherd more intimately in this way, where everything that prior to this was suffering and sorrowful and everything is transformed in his love to be this place of beauty and peace and joy within this seeking of the ascent like it's all tied together do you like the way so it's something i think is really interesting are the 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 images she uses to start 17 and 18 um do you like the way that she has her wake up yeah so and like it being on the third day in the next chapter is that what you right, yeah that, that's yeah that's like, so like in this in this chapter she wakes up in the cave smelling all of the perfumes and the incense and like pushing back like the folds and wrappings around her yes right? yeah as though she's resurrecting from the dead right exactly yeah yeah, no, I noted that too. I uh-huh. think that's awesome. I yeah. think it's fantastic because it's it's this ultimate death to self. So we see these little deaths to self throughout with um, the stones. And then it's this sort of ultimate death to self at this point. And then what happens after that, the promise that comes with that, where she's resurrected and this chapter two i loved the title it's called healing streams mm-hmm. and i just love that yeah because there's a lot here in 17 and then in the next chapter that uses that i think uses just enough of the like the biblical imagery it doesn't it doesn't overwhelm me with it mm-hmm. and uses just just kind of enough like with um in the start of the next chapter mm-hmm where she wakes, it's on the third day while it was still almost dark, mm-hmm. which is essentially exactly how the women appear at the tomb the next morning. Right. Right. Or Magdalene goes out in the morning when it's dark right. Right, and kind of meets him there in the garden alone. So I think there's a lot of that here too. 
and then in the um right the healing streams themselves there's a lot in this i mean this chapter is basically just like a page or two it's so short Mm -hmm. um the healing streams coming out from under the altar right which is both which is that like book of revelation Mm -hmm. imagery where the water the river of life flows out from the altar which itself is essentially just taken from the book of ezekiel where ezekiel sees this new temple and this you know this stream of water coming out from under the altar and under the temple which is just really really interesting so the fact that she uses these like these new testament and sort of resurrection morning and apocalyptic imagery mm-hmm. i think is really effective even though it's just such a short little chapter i think it really captures a sort of heavenly vision and mystery um that we see in the more apocalyptic (laughs) can i say that word let's try that again apocalyptic imagery um it's to me it's very poetic Mm -hmm. and i really appreciate it i it reminds me of some of the great saints how they would write down their visions or dreams or things they had would be sort of this mysterious and magnificent sort of poetic imagery because it seems like, I mean, it's hard to put these heavenly things into words, right? So poetry is a really good way to begin to tap into that mystery. Yeah. And one of the reasons I think it's a good, now this is a bit of a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. because I think actually towards the end, and we can talk about this, why there's some moments in the book where, the different layers of metaphor work either either don't quite work or they're maybe a little bit confusing, but then there are other parts where I think the different layers really do work Mm -hmm. because there's, even though we've been talking this whole time about how this journey really tracks onto the spiritual life of someone who's already baptized in a Christian, Mm -hmm. there's still this really great like baptismal imagery in this chapter. Mm -hmm. If you think about the way, because it talks about her, right? She's, she's healed completely, right? Of with her feet, her face, all of her sort of physical ailments and everything that had been an obstacle Mm -hmm. for her in her own nature are completely healed now. And then at the same time, there's kind of an, a new life given even after that in this chapter, where if you think about um, the imagery in really old iconography, which is just taken from the church's liturgical practice, where uh, new converts, right, they'd be given, they'd be baptized totally naked, mm-hmm. and they'd be wearing like white robes that they would put off and put on, mm-hmm. which is essentially what she's doing here, right? She notices she's wearing this white robe, and then she puts it off to get into the pool of clear, cold, sort of healing water, mm-hmm. and then gets back out of it again and so i think this is a moment where it's just really interesting because the the imagery is both something that has in order for the a lot of the spiritual allegory to work already would have happened before the story even starts Mm -hmm. and yet still appears here again at the end which itself is very similar to what the book of revelation does which is very kind of circular in a lot of its own logic which makes it really hard to understand, of course. Right. It reminds me of um, the new heaven and the new earth and getting our new bodies, you know, in. Yeah, because she even gets out of the water, right? And, you know, eats the berries that are growing on the side of the bank, mm-hmm. which is just like, 
you know, the trees with the fruit growing on both sides of the bank that give life and, and everything else. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a really beautiful chapter. It's very poetic. It's, it's inspiring. You know, you, she's been suffering so much. She's been striving. She's been working hard and also learning to surrender and not work hard. You know, mm -hmm. like all of these well, things. That's, I, think, I like that about the chapter two. She sleeps a lot, mm. right? Which is this really important imagery of heaven and being Rest. the promised land. Yeah. It's what, you know, Israel had been promised, right? God would bring them into his rest mm -hmm. and what the promise that it was meant to be and which is obviously spiritually interpreted as being a perfect way of conceiving of the life to come right this life of perfect rest finally and so like you said she's been working and climbing and doing everything that she's been experiencing and suffering and here she you know she falls asleep and then wakes up in the cave and she gets in the river and the stream and she's relaxed and she gets out and she falls asleep again. Mm -hmm. So she's just, she really is, you know, she's entered into this rest. It's really cathartic in that way. That really struck me about this chapter um, was the rest aspect. And it reminded me to rest. It reminded me that that's an important part of our journey to holiness is taking those moments to rest and rest in a true way, not, you know, in front of a screen or scrolling or any of that, but to really just empty our minds and be completely present and quiet within ourselves and truly just rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really important. I think it's hard in our day, especially with how busy everything is. It's too how busy. busy everyone is. And even, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, it's, it's a loud, busy world for extroverts in a lot of way. And, you know, if you're not really, really good at it, it can be hard to rest or to give yourself the permission to be restful. I and think here, that's it. For like, me, yeah. yeah, he, she wakes up and she doesn't even really, you know, the shepherd doesn't appear, which is really interesting, like that he wouldn't just be there right away to greet mm -hmm. her. But it's almost like he gives her just, she he gives her a minute. She takes right? a hot minute. Yeah, she gives her a minute to just wake up and sort of you know, breathe in what's there and take it in uh, before and then and fall asleep again. So it kind of gives her, it gives her another day. Right. She's recuperating. And mm -hmm. also it's, you know, the healing stream. So in that healing, she needs rest, which is another reminder for us, you know, in our own healing, be it, you know, our bodies and souls are intertwined and that's what make up the human person. Um, and so all of that affects you know, what happens to the body affects our soul. What happens to the soul affects our body. Mm -hmm. And just taking that into consideration and giving ourselves permission to rest and heal in the areas that we need healing. And I, especially, I think especially, you know, right now, if you're listening to this right now, we're going into Holy Week, we're in Passion Tide right now. Um, and just thinking about those areas where we need the healing um, and and asking the Lord to heal us in those areas. And when he asks us, do you want to be healed? Like he asked her, um, giving our yes and, and jumping as she jumped into, you know, the grave earlier on, she made that big leap. And then here she is healing truly. And in a, in a higher way than just if she had, you know, pursued a life on her own without the shepherd, she would have just stayed in that valley and lived a mediocre 
you know, life. But instead, she's she's made the ascent. Mm-hmm. Did you I'm trying to think of a good way to ask this? Were you surprised by her new name at all? Because I remember first reading this, I was always waiting, like, what what's it going to be? Yeah, yeah. I know, like, okay, you're not going to be much afraid again. I wonder what it will be. Did it fit? You think what happened? Um. Did it surprise me? No. Did I love it? Was I like, wow, I love that? No. Like, it just was fine to me. Okay, <laughs> she's called Grace and Glory. Uh-huh. That's nice. It. I don't know. I didn't really connect with it or anything. Okay. Did you, I mean, what, what are your Well, thoughts? I was trying to think about it, and I think... I think what I what I expected when I was reading it was that it would be a little it would strike me as a little more unique to her I suppose mm-hmm. but so on the one hand I see where you're coming from where it's a little maybe a little generic or just like oh yeah that's it seems like it would be fitting and expected yeah um, but I think the more I was thinking about it, it it might be it might work really well in the sense that it the fact that it is a little bit generic and you can kind of see it as something that can apply to anyone really Mm -hmm. right who's been transformed by grace and brought into glory so i think so i think i see where you're coming from where i expected it to be a little maybe more unique to her Mm -hmm. that's what i thought but on the other the flip side of the coin which i assume the author is really just trying to say is that it does encapsulate sort of the condition into which she's been brought yeah. Which is a little bit different. I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? It is it is vague though. Yeah. Um, but I mean I, I suppose much afraid is too. Like we can all relate to her in some way. There's some way everyone can relate to her. Sure. Um Yeah, I didn't connect with it though. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Like I wasn't like, Oh, I love that, you know. Well that's what I was wondering, because it is a little it's a little more broad. Than just the because she's characterized by fear, which is something very specific and particular, right? Right, and it's the reason all of her family is related to that too, right? It's all so whatever is associated with fear, and obviously there's some other ones that are obviously more generic, like you know bitterness and pride, and you know things that everyone deals with. But since her name had been so specific, I thought maybe the transformed name would be a little bit more specific. Right. But I do think that this works as kind of a generic catch-all because she's been brought into, she's been transformed by grace and brought into a state of glory in a sense, even though this is not like, oh, she's dead now. <laughs> right. right. Because then, you know, what happens at the end, at the end of the, the book we can talk about then. But okay, I was just, just kind of curious about what you thought about that name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't, I don't have many more thoughts on this chapter, honestly. Yeah. I liked the, I liked the fact that the stones are different Mm, because you've mm -hmm. been waiting. She'd been picking them up all along. And then you have that moment, which she alludes to here, where she almost threw them away and got rid of them. But here she sees that they're actually, they've been transformed into gemstones and that those are actually what makes her crown beautiful. Yeah, that's I forgot that was in this chapter. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Right, because we talk yeah. a lot about, obviously in a sort of, you know, allegorical or metaphorical spiritual sense of like receiving the crown in heaven. Right. Right, different crowns in heaven that you would receive and that kind of thing. And so I think this, uh, this is something that she weaves throughout the whole narrative. And I think has like a really good payoff here at the end. Yeah. That these 
moments of pain and suffering and sacrifice and the submission of her own will to what's going on and what's been thrust upon her, which she almost casts aside and sort of considers to be nothing, actually end up being what gives her this sort of greater beauty and adornment once she finally reaches this stage. Right. So I like that a lot. Yeah, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's a good reminder, I think. Yeah. And then also the new names of her companions too. Suffering and sorrow become joy and peace. Yes. Which seemed, which I'm not sure I knew. I'm not sure I expected anything. The first, again, I'm trying to remember the first, back to the first time I read it. Because she wakes up and they're gone. And so I think I just expected, oh, they're, they're just gone now. And they won't appear again. So to have their names be changed too, their identities be changed too, is almost... I think is now that I look back on it, maybe even more fitting because you, you start to see her experience sorrow and suffering as those two things on the journey, even where she starts to learn their language and she starts to actually take comfort in their presence. So along the way, it's, it's almost like they start to transform even earlier than she does because she, she goes through the ascent and is learning to see sorrow and suffering as sort of something that she can take solace and comfort in along the way. And so there's a kind of fittingness to their final formal transformation, even though along the way she's beginning to see suffering and pain and sorrow and these things as something joyful in themselves. Right. So I love this for two reasons. The first was that when suffering and sorrow first came into the picture, they were veiled and you could not see their faces. And I think that it's really significant that now that their names are changed to joy and peace, that you can see their faces and they're mm. dazzling. Um, so yeah. that makes them, so you take away the face and mm -hmm. it's scary, you know, that there's like a monstrous thing going on. Um, but if you have a face, uh, you you have, it, there's like a comfort in that. We can see who that person is, right? Um, and so with this, so I, I thought that was really significant. Um, and then the second thing is that this is what the saints talk about all the time. They're asking the Lord for more suffering. And people are like, you're crazy. Like, why would you want to suffer more and more? And it's because of this reason, because if they get to this point of holiness, really, that they see suffering as joy and peace. It's their joy and peace. It's what brings them. They know so intimately Jesus in this way, so, so vulnerably and intimately, and they want more of him. They want to meet him in his most vulnerable moment on the cross, um, in his life on earth. And, and so it becomes this joy and peace to enter into that with their beloved um, and it's all transformed. So that's what this reminded me of was how suffering turns into joy for the saint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the reasons the story works so well is that it does a good job of showing just as much as it does of telling. And as far as this is concerned, right. We had seen 
this specific conversation happened right at the outset where the shepherd invites her and she says yes but he gives her a couple of caveats so that she'll kind of have like a genuine explicit knowledge of what she's saying yes to and where he tells her like okay well love comes you know love does come with suffering because mm-hmm. she's she's worried about that she asks that question she says well i've heard that you know love and suffering go together and yeah i want to be loved but i'm not so sure about the second part he said well yeah they do go together that's for sure right um and so he says you know if you want love you have to accept the suffering too but it works in reverse in the sense that with suffering comes the possibility of love too now suffering can be wasted right right but if it's accepted then there there is an opportunity for joy and peace that otherwise wouldn't be there because there's very few situations that I could imagine where sorrow and suffering wouldn't also come with the choice of turning it into something good, right. which is what she gets to explicitly in the next chapter where right. she asks him and, and talks about these things, right? Right, yeah. And I think too, and I think I've said this before in this book club, but this is just reminding me again, and I think this is really, really important um, to understand uh, in our spiritual lives is that she is healed through her suffering. Like the Lord is healing her and knows what each of us needs to suffer, to grow. And when we unite that to him and surrender to him so perfectly, like our lady surrendered everything, to his most perfect will, then it becomes this, it becomes this transcendent reality of where grace is poured and the Lord works in us and gives us the grace to be joyful and at peace. That doesn't come from us. We can't do that. It is so out of this world that like, and it makes no sense. It's a paradox. Like it's, it's like, how could it be this way? And that's what is so beautiful about Christianity and knowing Christ is that he takes what's ugly and turns it into something magnificently beautiful. Um, And that's what he does in our souls. And so it's just a reminder that, you know, when we pray for healing, it's not always that automatic, you know, okay, I'm, I have a cold and now I'm better in, you know, an hour or whatever, because I'm praying for healing. It's, you know, sometimes, sometimes we get miracles like that, certainly, but a lot of times our healing comes through different deeper things in the in the deeper movements of our hearts in those corners where we need to go through different purgations and deaths to self to truly be alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she, so not to, there's, I don't want to skip over the opening of 19, so we'll come back to that, but just so we can keep talking about this same topic, mm-hmm. it's what she goes into in the middle and towards the end, more towards the end, of the next chapter where she goes through this long monologue about all the things that she learned along the way. And yeah. she gives, she gives four, she said four different things that she learns, right? First to accept all everything with joy mm-hmm. that's given second to be essentially to be patient and to bear with the, you know, essentially the evils that others sort of put in her way, right? right. To sort of bear all things and forgive all things. The third thing, was that she realized that the shepherd never really looked at her with a kind of human pity in the way that she existed and saw herself, but that even from the beginning, she realizes that he was able to see what she would eventually be. So I was actually interested in this Mm -hmm. 
That was the fourth, right? That's the third. But we oh, got, it's fine. No, okay. it's good. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about this, what you thought about that. I wasn't sure what I thought about that because I was thinking, I was thinking how so many of the saints talk about how it's precisely due to like our weakness that attracts the Lord to us. Like it's like almost like he just loves us so fervently like in our weakness and then pulls us out of it of course Mm -hmm. but of course he has this he sees where we end up just like this chapter says so there's an element of that but i i guess i was thinking the emphasis is on that and i wondered about i wondered if i agreed with that i haven't i have not come to a conclusion Uh but did you have any thoughts sure so i think i think it's a good thought because and I'll, I think I think it's correct and I think it's good and I'll tell you why. Essentially, one of the things I think we can forget, like especially when we like read a book like this that we really like and we agree with so much and everything, there is a sense in which we can either be sort of hypercritical if anything pops up mm-hmm. that we aren't sure about, and we can also kind of expect it to do everything. Mm. when it's just a book, it's just like an allegory. It can only do so much, right? Right? Because you could you could kind of you can kind of criticize the book, I think, in a lot of places. And you say, well, why didn't why didn't you do that? Or why didn't she include this part? Right? Where so so if there is an emphasis, I think that she included the right one. Because mm-hmm. usually we want to read things and be reminded of things that we don't need to be reminded of. And so I think your reaction, oh, well, what about the way that we are? Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's important too, and that's what, you know, that's where Christ meets us and he sees what we really are right and, and so he loves you, us in that right like that's very healing yeah exactly yeah. but because of right we could get into all kinds of questions about you know like divine foreknowledge and providence and everything else right, right. there is a is as far as what you're predestined to that's already determined right and so there's a vision right the you know Christ's vision, the divine vision, right, sees both of those things at once, sort of in a single whole. And so, I think one of the things that we as humans need to be reminded of sometimes, which I think she's talking about here, is that we, at least, you know, I think like you're saying, you do, and I do, and plenty of us do, is we tend to see ourselves in a particular way and be critical or see like all the faults that we have. Mm-hmm. And so it can, it can be consoling to remember that while Christ obviously sees those right now, it's also true that even if we can't see that to which we're called, he does. It's part of what I think St. John, for instance, is getting at in the first few verses of his, of, um, his first letter in first John, where he talks about, you know, we are children of God now, but we have no idea what we will be then, mm-hmm. essentially, right? Mm-hmm. So there's both, it's kind of a both and. Okay. And so even yeah. though she doesn't really, even though she's emphasizing, like you saw me, you saw me, right? What you, what you would do to me mm-hmm. and not just how I was. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's the way that I would read it mm-hmm. in a way that I think makes sense. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Even though if you were to say, no, he only saw what would be in the future. I think that would be wrong if you took it that way right. and emphasize that. But I don't think she is because I think the shepherd's been pretty clear throughout 
where the shepherd says things explicitly like you're lame you're weak you're you're sleep. you know he, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he points out all of her flaws to her so it's not like he didn't notice right yeah but it's a good point yeah because it was something, something i thought about i thought about it too oh interesting yeah uh-huh. so it's a thing yeah no, maybe I, maybe our other I definitely think it about is. it as well so. yeah i think that's probably true there's more things that are similar to that in this chapter and the next that i maybe i'll ask you about too yeah and then the fourth thing just to conclude our conversation Mm-hmm. that we were that we were dealing with before was this idea of everything that happened that was what she says crooked and distorted and ugly right can be transformed if it's reacted to with love and patience and submission and that in fact Right, the shepherd allows those bad, evil things to happen to her mm-hmm. to bring about a bring about a greater good, yeah, than would have been possible before, which is one of the major answers to the problem of evil that right. the church and the her great thinkers have given down through the ages because it it is a real it is a problem, right? If God's good and can do anything, why why is there evil in the world? Mm-hmm. Right. And one of, you know, one of the answers that seems to make the most sense is that there are certain goods that are brought out of evil that are greater than could have been achieved without permitting that. Of course. I mean, you just look at Christ's life and you see that in a second. But also, I, yeah, right away, I think of Our Lady of Sorrows and Our Lady at the Cross and everything and her submission and her surrender and how her motherhood, you know, reigned in that moment because of her submission to God and acceptance of his will. So we obviously see that with Christ, but it's also very um, inspiring to think of our mother and our, you know, our lady going through that as well, just as purely human. Well, there's certain things in the world that wouldn't exist, certain good things that wouldn't exist without evil. Mm-hmm. Right, like um, mercy and forgiveness, for instance. Yeah. Right. Saint Thomas in the Summa talks about God's mercy, and he asks about, and he. It's really interesting because there's one sense in which Thomas seems to say, mercy is God's greatest attribute, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's kind of a, it's really interesting in that it's one of the things that didn't have to exist. Technically, it's so interesting right. to think about it. Because if there was nothing Easter. for God to be yeah. merciful to, yeah. then he wouldn't be merciful to anyone. Right. So, well, God doesn't have to be merciful to be God because if we hadn't, if Adam hadn't sinned, well, then there'd be no sin to show mercy. There'd be no one to forgive. Oh, happy fall. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So, it is, it is really interesting. Yeah. One of the things, so to, to, I'd mentioned right, so a few, a handful of other things that I think you can ask questions about that might seem, you know, you might, you know, might raise your eyebrow at first blush, but I think still makes sense is much afraid or grace and glory right here at the opening of chapter 19 talks about how, and we're seeing what I think, what I'm assuming is kind of her, her inner monologue. She talks about how there's, things and truths that she's experienced now that she had been really naive about before and that she talks about how she had been kind of blind 
and stupid about having certain false ideas before and that there really isn't an equivalent for what she had attempted to understand about the shepherd and the high places before being there. And now that she's actually been there, now she sees, okay, well, I couldn't have understood then. But now that I'm on this side of things, I can see things with such clarity that it's as if I were blind and stupid and had really no idea what I was talking about at all before. I loved that. So I I have a note on that too, like about how she you know, how she notes it's on the bottom of page 25 that um, even, you know, in reading the book of books of so the Holy Bible, it can be so astonishingly, astonishingly misunderstood um, while one still lives on the low levels of spiritual experience. Um, and, and just showing that. So I, I wondered your thoughts on that, because that is definitely connected to what you said. And that really struck me. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go out. I don't know the author's history. I'm going to kind of assume that she wasn't super familiar with Thomas Aquinas, just mm -hmm. being like a, I think Wasn't she, was she a, a Quaker? I think so, yeah. So probably not. So sort of like a, yeah, 20th century American evangelical Quaker kind of revival sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, flavor. Um, but this is what a lot of people who are outside the church, I think, look at St. Thomas Aquinas and what he said at the end of his life. Because he, at the end of his life, he he's dying at the Abbey and he has these mystical experiences. And he says that famous line, right, where he was in the middle of doing a whole bunch of works and they wanted him to, the, the monks at the Abbey wanted him to write a commentary on the Song of Songs mm -hmm. for them. It's like, oh, look, so, look, you know, the great Thomas is here. Let's see if you can get him to do something. Mm -hmm. And he says something to the effect of, right, I, I can't, right, because compared to what I've seen, all of my writings are like straw. Yeah. Right. And certain people have sort of read that and think, oh, well, you know, at the end of his life, Thomas realized that everything he'd written was kind of worthless. And it's not really true. Mm -mm. Right. But it, it, there, there is a sense in which it's true in a relative sense, right? Because everything that he had written was so good and so true and so edifying and glorifying of all the truths of the faith. And yet he was able to look at those and see, well, compared to what he com compared to what he was well, granted his visions, in yeah. his mystical experience in his experience versus his theology, right? He was able to say like, my experience of the reality is so much greater than my attempt to penetrate to that reality with the science of theology. Right. So not that all of those things are wrong or bad or worthless or anything like that, that they should be burned or thrown away. But in comparison, right? the reality is just that much greater. And right. I think that's what she's saying. I think oh, that's, the that's exact exactly. Same. Yeah, that's exactly what I was mm -hmm. thinking she was saying. And it, it also shows that everything needs to be applied. Theology needs to be applied in practical life and lived out. Theology without seeking and growing in holiness is empty and dead. Mm -hmm. So that's, and that's that, you know? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's the big debate about whether theology is a 
a theoretical or a practical science. Mm. Um, both? You know, yes, obviously. <laughs> ultimately, it's both. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so what she says is, you know, you there's there's so much more to this reality that on the other side of the on the wrong side of the grave on the mountain right on the wrong side of a true experience with the reality you can it can seem one way right but once you finally experience that reality and again because the allegory here at least to me see it doesn't seem to be an allegory where oh now she's died and she's in glory right if we if we track everything on right because at the end which we'll talk about in a minute right she goes back to the valley and so right allegorically she would still be alive and experiencing her her spiritual journey there's a sense in which now that she's actually had this experience she can go back down to the same places and sort of see them in a new light yeah Okay, well, now I'm interested in hearing your last chapter thoughts because I had some different thoughts. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm trying. To, I'm just trying to skip through and see if there's anything else. I really liked the in chapter 19, um, all the connections to Song of Songs. Mm-hmm. I thought yeah, you really get the beautiful. long, yeah, the long section. Here. I wanted so this was something I thought I wanted more here because I think in Song of Songs it's deeply intimate union, right? And so I think I was like starving for more here um, because it, it was like a taste of it, but I was like, okay, more, you know, like, yeah. Did you, are we in 19 or 20? Well, I was on 19. Okay. I, was I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. I wasn't sure. With the song of songs. Yeah. Um, part, <laughs> part of me wishes she'd done like the whole book and it was included as like an appendix or something mm. right where you did the whole book could be rewritten in in this um in this rhyming scheme where she oh, where yeah. she gives it right because it's obviously not like a strict tra- translation or anything right, it's right. kind of her own take on the on the verses and the chapters themselves it would have been nice to kind of see because i find her her form of the canticle mm-hmm. really pretty the way that she's able to poetically yeah. put this, put all the words through in a way that's, uh, seems very artful. So return to the Valley. So this is really interesting how it ends. Well, I think, so there's a sense in which, again, we've been talking a little bit about this past hour or so about the allegory and her use of it being kind of a double-edged sword where it works sometimes and doesn't work as well other times. One of the things to sort of lead into what I think about this chapter, one of the things that I thought could have been cleaned up in the book itself was, maybe I'll use Narnia as an example, right? In Narnia, Narnia is an allegory and it sticks purely to the allegory, right? There's never any slip-ups or you know, there's no explicit allusions, right? Where, you know, Edmund is talking to Aslan and it's like, oh, and you're like Jesus in our world, right? It's, it, it doesn't exist that way, right? right. It's, it's all, the, all the allegory is just the allegory. Throughout the book, it's kind of like 85% allegory. And then there's 15% of just very explicit use of scripture or her calling the shepherd, like Lord and things mm-hmm. like this, where the allegory kind of slips. Mm-hmm. And obviously I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think she's, I don't think it's, you know, an editing mistake or anything like that. I think it's very intentional, but I think those 
and it, it might sound weird, right? But I think the story would have been stronger if she hadn't included those and mm-hmm. it had just been the allegory completely mm-hmm. instead of those little moments and words and verses and things that kind of take you out of the allegory world and back into, I guess, what we would consider reality. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of wants you to just slip right back into the narrative of the story. Mm-hmm. So all of that to basically say, I do think there are a few weaknesses to the book itself. And the ending, in my mind, is a little anticlimactic, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But I think that's probably just because I find it, and I'm not sure if you think similarly or or differently, I, I find the book to be most effective and most affectively moving to me when I'm viewing it through the lens of its, of how it matches the spiritual life yeah, in the soul, where clearly the end of the book in this chapter is not that. Right. Where it's the ending isn't, okay, we're still in the high places and we're, sort of going up to even, because we're we're told, right, there's even higher places to go. Right. So if we're just reading it through the lens of the growth of the soul and continued union and experience of the soul's union with God, then the ending I would write would be that they continue to ascend higher and higher. Whereas that's where it seems that the author is doing something different and is saying, okay, well, now that you've had this experience, this is what's going to empower you to go back and do that practical stuff, right? And be like a light to the world and to go back into the valley where you had been, right? So that this experience is going to be the means through which and the reason why you can go back and love others, which is obviously not a bad thing, <laughs> right? Right. So I actually, I took it and maybe I just twisted it in my mind to what I wanted it to be. So, (laughs) but might be the only one who's ever done that. Yeah. But anyway, so this is, this is how I took it. Like, this is where I, and, and again, I think it's because I saw, I saw it in like a, a more deep way than like what the pages were saying. So for me, I kind of saw it as she did die and she's interceding now so because i was thinking about and that's exactly what i was thinking about was inter- the interception of the saints mm-hmm. so you know we ask for the saints help uh for the saints help in our lives and to pray for us because they are alive they are not dead they're in heaven so they Yeah, I was looking at it and they come down, they continue to work their mission until the end of time, right? Until our new bodies, till their souls and um, are you reunited to their bodies and they get their new bodies and we're in the new heaven and new earth. Until that point, we are still in work mode. So even though there's this rest in heaven, you see how the missions of the saints Mm -hmm. are still lived out after their death. Um, it's so easy to see with some of the great, great saints, like even just St. Therese, it's like, well, that's the one that I, th- I think probably most people would think of, I assume. Well, the roses. With just her, and, yeah. Yeah. Like her with her kind of last will and testament at the end, right? Like I'll spend my heaven doing good on earth, right? Kind right. of very explicit. Like, I know I'm still going, you know, I know that 
death isn't the end, right? And that being united to Christ in the next life is really a means through which more good can be done. Right, exactly, so, and more perfectly. Mm -hmm. And so she promised to send a shower of roses down from heaven. And how many of us have received roses from Therese? I mean, there are just so many stories when you pray a novena to her of getting roses, like actual tangible roses. All right, so if you, okay, so read that way. Yeah. I think it also makes sense. Okay, so that's how I, I took it, was I was like, she's interceding. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and he's like, and that gives him glory. And that was like something that was really cool to me was like how this showed that, like how he was like, do this, you know, like this gives me glory when you do this, it doesn't rob him of anything. Right. So this to me was like a really significant argument for that. Um, in explaining that. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, that's not something that immediately popped out to me. I think. I don't know why it popped out to me. Well, <laughs> Well, I think it popped out of you because it's true, but yeah. I think it's, I think it, I think the fact that it's written this way allows it to work in this manifold multivalent way. Cause both, right. I, it seems like both would be true. Cause I think you would obviously want to say that the experience of grace and glory and being united to God and having this vision and this revelation of the, all those things that are really most true, which, right, it's, it's, it's the mountain, it's the high places that are real, the mist and the fog, that's the illusion. Right? Mm -hmm. Having experienced the reality, you can go back into whatever experience in your own life you would have sort of just maybe really hated before or really seen in a particularly maybe dark or gloomy or resentful or you know, all of those other fearings away, right. right? You can go back into whatever your personal valley of humiliation is in a way where you're not, you're not going with sorrow and suffering anymore, right? She goes back down the waterfall with joy and peace. They come with her. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense on the one hand, you can go back into whatever your worldly vocation happens to be with joy and peace knowing that they're there with you, right? And having this sort of renewed ability and vision after being healed because of grace and thanks so, to grace. And at the same time, it can easily be seen as this is also the same dynamic that occurs in the life to come. So I think both of those things work really well. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. It doesn't fit with the Carmelite Ascent to Holiness this ending unless she's like dead and interceding because you wouldn't go back down the mountain. Um, you would keep ascending higher. And this was something that maybe, well, okay. No, 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 no. Because if the mountain is your own soul's growth in holiness, uh -huh. then you cannot, if you turn back, you're turning back. Right. But that, like, yeah, I think you have to see it in both ways though. Right. Cause even, even like a contemplative religious order, right therese writes about still having to deal with like sisters who are mean to her and stuff you know what i mean well of course yeah right but like the ascent to holiness like all of that would just bring you higher 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 like you keep going you keep growing um but this was the first chapter where to this is this was my problem with this chapter was suddenly gloomy spiteful craven fear all those people they became real people for the first time like to me they were like spirits of things or but yeah, I guess. Well, that's, that's why. I'm, that, so that's why. That's what I'm talking about. Where there's like that 15 percent of the allegory that 
that's a little shaky. Well, this this right? actually, yeah, this part, I, this was my least favorite chapter of the book. And it was for this reason, because <laughs> she, they became people. And it seemed to me that she was actually like talking about specific people <laughs> who had these problems. <laughs> that's really funny. And, uh-huh. and I was like, I actually really don't like that. You know, like I just, I didn't like so that. you wanted them to like remain more like metaphorical yeah and just the spirit Uh of something um that was like causing her difficulties yeah you know rather than being so tangible like i'm gonna go down and change this person and this person is this way for this reason um and yeah i just didn't like that because that's not how i saw those um like those I don't know what are we mm-hmm. calling them now. Like I don't know. Are we calling them people? Yeah. Are we yeah, calling yeah, yeah. them spirits of things? No, I think like, I understand, you... and I think that's part of the reason, part of what I've been trying to get at a little bit, where the allegory as a whole, right, from chapter one, you know, first page to the last page, mostly works, but sometimes you can see a little cracks that might sort of throw you off of the way that most of the narrative had been tracking this far, and so I totally see why. Um, their presence in the story can very easily be seen as these, what you're saying, the kind of these metaphorical figures, right? They're stand-ins for her own fears and things like that. Along yeah. The way. I didn't want that. And then they become like <laughs> real people at the end. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, I think that that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I was like, Oh, that's, well, that's mean. I think that's why. <laughs> Oh, no. um, yeah, I think that's why. Like, you are craving fear. Me, yeah, there's part of me that thinks oh, some of the ending is a bit anticlimactic. I yeah. do like the very. I mean, I do like the very end. Like this, the idea and the imagery of her sort of becoming one with the waterfall. Yeah, and sort beautiful. of pouring back down. Right, like the whole imagery of yeah. the water coming down from the heights and going lower still, right? right? Tracking onto that, you know, the Philippians Christological hymn, essentially, right? Where Christ, you know, thinks, you know, the, you know, his divinity is nothing to be sort of grasped and, and manipulated and taken advantage of. And he comes and takes on the form of a slave in order to perform his great work of redemption. That whole arc of, you know, from the transcendent to the imminent right down you know, further down and further down and further down. Yeah. Um, is a really, also really interesting parallel to Lewis's at the end of the last battle and everything further up and further in, right? And so back out and back into the world, and there's this sort of descent, you know, down, further down, right? From the heights mm-hmm. down. And that's how there's a really beautiful kind of spiritual movement that's described by that. And at the same time, you look at sort of Lewis's, right? The movement into Aslan's country as further up and further in, right? It's always further up and further in. And that's kind of an image of the beatific vision and the life to come. That There will always be something more to learn, something more to know, something more to love, something higher to know and higher to go. Right. I think... I think it was very, so I, I agree with you. It's a mixed all bag. That. Last I'm, chapter's a mixed bag. Right. I, but like for, I guess what I was looking for was that deep union with Christ. And in that union, like, first of all, that clarity of like, are you dead? Or, you know, because I was like talking about the intercession stuff and everything yeah. like that. Like for uh-huh. me, that's what came out of this. But if she's not dead, then 
there needs to be um like for it to be uh you know um completely in light of like the truth of what we know about you know spirituality um and the ascent it would be this union and within that union like sharing it really bringing christ into the world Mm -hmm. right but it wouldn't here's my problem it wouldn't be a going back i guess i guess she's not going back in the same way but but i think if we're talking about the mountain as far as the ascent to holiness then it gets a little it doesn't really make sense yeah that's why i think you have to you have to kind of keep your head on a swivel in the last chapter. Cause like a lot of things are happening. Right. And like the metaphor is kind of splitting apart a little bit that had worked most of the way through. Yeah. Um, so if it becomes more real, then it becomes one thing, but if it stayed allegorical and metaphorical, then it would, you know, would have done another thing. Right. That kind of thing. I think that's exactly mm-hmm. right. So that's my last thoughts on the book yeah. or that chapter. What about you? Would you want like a sequel or something? To this book? Yeah. Uh, like if you're talking, oh, I wanted this to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it had it had my wheels turning um, of what I would want to happen. Mm-hmm. I wanted her to have bridal union with Christ. Like I wanted the Song of Songs to manifest in like a very real way of how you hear like St. Therese, uh, Teresa of Avila had just mystical union with Christ um, or St. Catherine of Siena received the wedding ring. You know, our lady put a wedding band on her finger and she was mystically united to Christ. I wanted something like that, that deep union. That's like her and him. And then she's just totally transformed within that love. Hmm. What about you? I don't know. I feel like, at some point it would be really fun to do some, to not like a sequel, but to do, to write a book that was, that was similar, right. In this kind of allegorical sense, mm-hmm. it would be like a life goal. Like at I, some point in the next like 40 years, <clears throat> maybe try and do something. I'm not sure I could, like the goal would be like to get, you know, have someone read it and have kind of the same sort of like marveling experience at that. I don't know if I'd ever be, successful i don't know but i think you should do it i mean i what i was immediately thinking of was i'm writing the bridal woman right now right so like the next book and it's all about meditations on you you know union with christ through suffering and stuff so i was just really motivated to to like begin writing again because i kind of stopped so i i think it motivated me to do that did you have a favorite moment in the book i think when she saw the sort of elevator kind of thing the lift up and she had to sort of surrender everything and stop trying so hard and just let the lord work that was that was for me Hmm. the most real moment where i'm like yep that's that's it right there (laughs) what about you yeah i think my two favorite moments of the book, at least in the experience of reading them, really being struck by what's happening on the page, were we talked about this recently? I think in the last episode, the 
the the image sort of the mental image i think that's you know one of the benefits of, of reading something as opposed to watching a movie or a television show right when you watch something it's pure it's passive in the sense that someone else has an image and you view that image right and it could be a good one or a bad one there's you know plenty plenty of both right but sort of re having attempting to picture in my mind what it would be like for her to stand in the grave on the mountain at the altar with this sort of clouded misty priest like rip the natural love out of her heart i liked that moment a lot mm -hmm. but even more than that i think i i know just from experience both in my own experience reading it and then us reading together mm -hmm. you kind of going through it for the first time the moment where the shepherd reveals who her her climbing companions will be where it's like oh it's gonna be so great you pick these two companions yeah, out yeah, for yeah. me like they're gonna be the best they're handpicked by the shepherd and you know oh i'd like to introduce you to sorrow and suffering <laughs> yeah i mean right? i cried yeah. when you read that i yeah. think i would assume for most people that if it's not the best or like most standout moment it would at least be among sort of like a top three mm -hmm. like i think that's just that moment i think is just really 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 meaningful yeah it is mm -hmm. it's and it's a fantastic book i mean i'm i'm so yeah happy read it yeah overall it has so many it has so much richness and wisdom within it i don't even know if the author knew like or not like you know you just don't know mm -hmm. um but but it had so much truth in this book it's really profound yeah really good a lot of fun I know the kids want me to read it, so I'm sure that's what I'll do next. Yeah. Because that's the other that. thing. I think it's it's one of the few books, I think, that works at almost any age, I would assume, right? I'm sure if I read it to our six-year-old, probably wouldn't do very much, right? Right. But for, you know, what's, what's the youngest? I'm like nine or ten as early as that. I would assume it would probably be both really entertaining and interesting, and also useful and practical in that sense where they would, they would get it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just in the sense that like Narnia, you know, you can read and enjoy those as an adult, but even though they're written sort of at a level that even young children would understand, I think this is the same kind of thing. It's so cool when children also get those things. Like I still remember when our eldest after, when you ended Narnia, do you remember the first yeah. thing? Like she uh -huh. just like popped up and goes, Oh, <gasps> Aslan is Jesus. And we were like, yes, yes, she got it, you know, because we didn't tell her, but she, she got it. So I think this is one of those, those books too, where you can let them unravel it um, because children have so much wisdom. Yeah. So that'll be fun to read yeah. that. I know she wants me to do that soon. So yeah. I'm sure I'll do that and start that in the next week. Yeah. I think that'll be great. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's it. I think. Yeah, this was great. We'll That's see you it. for the next one. We have a new, we are next book club. I think people are going to be very interested. In. Is that a summer thing? So still a few months away? I'm pretty or? sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, in a couple months, I guess we'll do that. Yeah, we'll be back. But for now, I guess finish Passion Week. Yes. Go into Holy Week. Yes. And come out the other side. A very blessed Holy Week to all of you. All right, that's the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider giving us a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. 
Until next time.